So hey, welcome here. Uh, glad you're with us this weekend, and especially those of you joining us at home and at our other campuses. We are jumping into the second half of last weekend's message. So you'll remember last week, those of you who were here, and if you weren't here, why weren't you here? So jump into chapter 3, Philippians. You know this, we're in a study in this book, and we're midway through chapter 3, and really chapter 3, from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter three verse, or chapter 4, verse 1, is really one long paragraph, even though most of our Bibles break it into two. The thought process is one long paragraph. So we dealt with the first half up through verse 9 last week, and we're going to pick up where we left off and, uh, and jump into that. So I encourage you to have your Bibles. We're going to be reading together. Uh, and I'll just tell you up front, uh, this is really a meat and potatoes type of a message. Uh, There's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of filler in this thing. It is just good old solid Bible teaching. Uh, And it is basically a challenge from the Apostle Paul that says, run the race, eyes on the finish line, no looking backwards, finish well. That's really what he has to say in this text. And so if you get that theme, then you've got the theme of the text. Uh, So I'll tell you where we're headed right from the get-go. If you remember nothing else, if you can take this one main thought with you as you walk out the doors this weekend, if you can remember this thought, you'll remember the theme of the text, that it is not how you start the race that matters, it is how you finish the race that matters. It's not how you start the race that matters, it is how you finish the race that matters. And I'm sure you have heard this kind of teaching in so many other areas of life as well. Uh, It's not the day you start your business that is the most important. It's when you come to the end of your career and you're headed toward retirement and now you want to sell your business. And you get the proof of whether you were successful in building a business that was actually successful enough that somebody else would want to take it off your hands and buy it from you. That'll, That'll be the big test, not the day you start the business. It's not the day that you leave on your honeymoon to start your marriage that matters most, honestly. It's how will that marriage end? Will it end with one of you standing at the grave of the other, as you said in those vows, or will it end in some other way? Uh, It's not the day that you publicly profess your faith and you go through the waters of baptism, although that is so very important. It is how you finish the race. It's how you persevere. So the baptism is simply the beginning. It's the public declaration and saying, I'm on Jesus' team and I'm part of the people of God and I want to live my life, the entirety of my life in following him. So it's not how you start the race that matters. It's how you finish the race. Uh, One of Paul's favorite athletic metaphors was the race and the runner. He used it over and over again, uh, probably because it was so well-known in the ancient uh, Roman Greco world that he was part of. Uh, In two factors, uh, the world of the Olympic runners. Uh, The Olympics that started in 700 BC, and in those early years of the Olympics, not like in our day, uh, the basic sport was running. Uh, There was boxing and there was wrestling in the early years, but the majority of the games in those early years were various forms of racing. Foot races for men and women, chariot races, horse races. It was all about the race in the early days. And so Paul picks up on a very common metaphor in that time and place that they would know about this. But but even more than the Olympic theme is the idea of the runner that was uh, in that day and age. So uh, how do we get messages out today? Uh, the internet. We send a text. We send an email. We might do snail mail. We might write something down and actually put a stamp on it. Costs five bucks these days, but you can still mail a letter. <laughs> but in those days, how did you get a message out? Because they had none of that modern technology. And so the only way to get a message out was to take a runner, literally a, another person, 
speak the message to them, they would run and then speak the message or write it down and they would carry it. And, and this group of runners were called uh, hemerodromes. There's the Greek word for it, the hemerodromes. They were literally human couriers that would run in their lifetime thousands of miles in their lifetime. Uh, the most famous of all these hemerodromes is a guy named Pheidippides. Some of you may have bumped into him, uh, some of you who are marathoners and runners. The most famous run from Marathon to Athens. So Pheidippides was the runner who was sent, first of all, as the Persians are invading Greece and the Athenians are fighting him off and they need some help. So they send him to the Spartans. Sparta is literally a place and the Spartans were literally soldiers. Sends him 150 miles to Sparta to get the troops to come join them. And then he runs home. So he's now run 300 miles. And then the governor's like, hey, I need you to go over to Marathon, 26 miles. Go over to Marathon and see how the battle is going. And so Pheidippides runs the 26 miles to Marathon, finds out that actually the battle is going very well. They're defeating the Persian, the invading armies. And now he has to run back to Athens, 26 miles. Like, this is not just a marathon. This is an ultra, ultra, ultra. Pheidippides. Now, our text doesn't actually use the word race or runner, but it does use the word prize. And Paul uses the exact same language in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Very same thought. So run that you might obtain it. All right. I could prime the pump for our discussion and give you a few things to think about. What is it that you are chasing? What are you chasing? What race are you running if you wanted to have a philosophical discussion about your life? And what prize is at the end of your race? Or if I were to grab a, an illustration from Stephen Covey, imagine that you walk into a funeral. Typical funeral, you've been to many of them. The music is playing, and as you're looking around the room, you realize it's unique in that you seem to know everybody in this room. A lot of your family are there, cousins that you haven't seen since the last family reunion or weddings and funerals. They're there, friends from work, friends from church, like you know all these people. And then as you get to the front and it's an open casket and you look in, you realize, oh, dang, it's my funeral. It's me staring me back from the casket. And so you get to listen in to the eulogies and the people who talk about you at your funeral. And so begin with the end of the mind is the, the chapter that he writes this in. And, and he asks the question, what is it that you would want to have said about you on that final day? What characteristics, what accomplishments, what uh, uh, input did you have in these people's lives that have all come out to honor you on the day of your funeral? Lots of questions. Last weekend, Paul laid down the imperative of this uh, chapter 3, verse 1, opened with this imperative, rejoice in the Lord. And the, the challenge that I gave last weekend was simply this challenge that if you are not a rejoicing Christian, then maybe you're not a Christian at all. Now, I know most of you heard that message. If you didn't, well, shame on you, number one. Uh, but secondly, just go back and listen to it. I, I fundamentally believe this, that if you're not a rejoicing Christian, you're probably not a Christian at all. That we either receive the gospel and rejoice in the gospel or we reject the gospel. There, there's no two other alternatives. And meh is not an option. And yet across the West, and here in North America in particular, apathetic Christianity has become normal and acceptable. Because it is so easy in our day and age to add a little religion, quote unquote, to your life and not have it make any difference in how you actually believe or live your life. But the times, they are a-changing. And you know this. 
And I think actually maybe for the good of the faith and of the church, because to claim to be a nominal Christian, which means a Christian in name only, so you check off the census block, I'm a Christian, but it makes no difference in how you live your life, that is no longer a good thing in North America. It's no longer an admired thing. And so the lines are being drawn more clearly of who's in and who's out. And so as Paul brings this first half of this paragraph to a great crescendo in, in verse 11. And so we went up to verse nine. Now we're in verse 10, just finishing off last weekend's message that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So we talked about wrongly rejoicing in our own religious righteousness or rightly rejoicing in the finished work of Christ. And then he brings it to this conclusion that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's really a very holistic appeal. Paul is saying you can hear his angst, you can hear his passion, you can hear his desire in in his language. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know Christ. I want to experience Christ. And if we are to rejoice, and then as you get to the end of this paragraph, the last paragraph, Verse ends with another verb, stand firm, chapter 4, verse 1. Rejoice, chapter 3, verse 1. Stand firm, chapter 4, verse 1. We have got to be anchored deeply in the knowledge of God. And so Paul says, I want to know Christ. Now, you will know this from other scriptures. But God is trying to make himself known to us at all times. So Psalm 19 is one of the most famous, talking about creation. And on days like we've experienced this weekend, where you see the sun and the mountains and the blue skies, you're like, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge that creation shouts to us if we're listening, there has got to be a God. This could not have happened by accident. And so creation speaks to us. But we know also that the foundational work of the church is to get the knowledge of God out. Now, here's an interesting text, Psalm 82, particularly given the time that we're living in right now with war in Ukraine and a lot of upset around the world. So listen to this text. It could be a great social justice warrior's text. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And if we stopped right there, you're like, yes and amen. We should be doing this. We should be coming alongside. We should be helping and caring and praying and serving these folks. But then the text goes on and and look at the description. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So in, in essence, in this psalm, it's saying it's not just enough to care for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the destitute and to rescue them from the hand of the wicked. We also need to tell them the knowledge of God. We've got to tell them about the eternal story, not just feed them for today, but feed them for eternity. And there's a great rebuke in Hosea chapter 4 where it says this, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it language. And and then God summarizes it with this statement, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. So the scripture is filled with this thought. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when Paul says, I want to know Christ, 
I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering, his prayer at the start of this book, chapter 1, verse 9, that you would grow in your depths of knowledge, uh, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and in discernment, that we should grow to be men and women of the word, men and women of the book. But, but friends, I need to tell you this, knowledge alone, head knowledge alone is not enough. Because there are a ton of people in our world, a ton of very smart people in our world who know a lot about God, but don't actually know God at all. Uh, Stephen Prothero is a guy that I have quoted uh, many times before. If you want to know anything about a world religion, he would be a great speaker to call. He holds a PhD in religious studies, and he teaches comparative religions at Boston University. If you want to know about Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, he knows it all. He's written books on it. And and even his take on Christianity is quite accurate and quite good. And yet it has not taken root in his heart. It's all just head knowledge. And he self-describes himself as spiritually confused. You're like, the guy knows probably far more than most of us in this room, and yet he's saying, it hasn't taken root, I'm still confused about all these things. Or the University of Toronto prof, uh, Jordan Peterson, so well known across Canada in these days, clinical psychologist, and if you listen to him, if you read his writings, you will know that this guy quotes more scripture than most pastors quote on an average weekend. And yet, he would say he's intrigued by Jesus, but he isn't yet there. Hasn't placed his faith in Christ. So I would say to you that knowledge alone is not enough. And that's what Paul is saying. I want to know him. Know him in the sense of I want to experience him. My heart has to be engaged or I'm dead in the water. My head knowledge alone is not enough. Uh, Last week, we talked about that 18-inch conversion, right? To get it from your head down to your heart. I want to know him. And the power of the resurrection, I want to know the things that move the heart of God. I want to walk in a supernatural experience of God. I want to know the same power, he says, that Christ exerted when he walked out of the tomb alive. Resurrection power. I want to know that. Interesting. He uses the word, the Greek word, I'll put it on the screen, dunamis, because it's transliterated into English, and you can literally see the English word in the Greek word. I want to know the power of the resurrection, the dunamis. We get dynamite from that very same word. And you're like, how often have I thought about my experience with Christ in that sense, that there literally is, is power, there's dynamite within me, that God has placed his spirit in us. And so we've got to ask some questions. Are we truly experiencing a Holy Spirit-filled life and the power of God in our daily lives? And you will know that Christianity has often swung like a pendulum between two polar extremes. So on on one end is, is dead, dry orthodoxy. It's true, it's accurate, it's great theology, but it's as boring as crazy. And on the other end is wacko charismania. You know this? Somebody say an amen, yes. Charismatics, there you go. Some call it the war between the word and the spirit. The word on one hand, the spirit on the other side. And yet, if you're reading the scriptures, you will know that no dichotomy like that exists in the scriptures. Both word and spirit are needed. We need the deep, rich depth of theological study. We need deep doctrines. We need the creeds of the church. We need theology. We need to dig deep. But we also need the oil and wine of the spirit poured out to soften us up. And we need the dunamis of the spirit in our daily lives. We need both, right? John Stott, an old Anglican preacher, said this famous quote of his, all word 
and we dry up. All spirit, we blow up. But word and spirit together, we grow up. And so that's the finish to last week's message, and now we can start this week's. It's all one paragraph, so he just rolls right into the next thought. We're, we're picking up now at the, the end of verse 11 and going into verse 12, but the challenge is this, keep running the race, finish well, stand firm. In other words, it is not how you start the race that matters, but it is how you finish that matters. That is what he's getting at. And there is no question that the Apostle Paul is on fire for the Lord. He is white hot. There's no question about this. His willingness to step into any and every situation and to endure incredible opposition. Even remind yourself, this letter is being written from prison. He's been in prison for over two years in Caesarea. He's now in, in Rome where he spends another two years in prison. And, and somewhere in that four-year period, he's writing this letter of rejoicing from prison. In Corinthians 11, uh, listen to this recounting of what he has endured. He says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, in the biblical sense of the word. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul's life. And you're like, nobody could endure that kind of suffering without an eye onto some greater prize at the end, right? And so in Romans 8, he talks about it. He's like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And in that context, it's really interesting. He calls these things light and momentary afflictions. And I'm like, what kind of a freak are you, Paul? Like you read that list from Corinthians and you go, he endured like beating 39 lashes five times. A lot of people died from just one of those. Stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, all these things he said. And he's like, but these are just light and momentary afflictions, afflictions in light of what's coming. And so as we read on in this text, we see Paul's humility. It just jumps off the page at us. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So just press pause there. It is so opposite from the look-at-me culture that we live in. Paul is like, I'm not blowing my own horn here. I am well aware that I have not yet arrived. And having just looked at those passages that we read just a moment ago, his sufferings and his endurance, and knowing what we know about the Apostle Paul makes this statement even more amazing, because if anybody in the New Testament might have been held up as an example of mature faith, somebody that we should look to and go, woohoo, Paul's the hero, and yet three times in the negative, he says, I'm not there yet, I'm not perfect, I haven't yet grasped the prize, and, and what it points us to is that this transformation that happens as we get closer and closer to Jesus. And as we get closer to the Lord, the more we know of him, the less we think about ourselves. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That is, he increases in value and focus and attention. Our lives literally fall into the backdrop. 
Our aim becomes more and more and more to make much of Jesus. And we stop talking about both things, our great sins and our great accomplishments. We stop talking about ourselves entirely. It's not that I was a really great sinner and he saved me or I was really righteous and he saved me. No, it's like Jesus. Jesus becomes our focus. And then we see his tenacity. You just carry on that next verse. It's not I've considered, I've not made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I might not have arrived yet, but I am pressing in. I am not giving up. And my, 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 how we need that encouragement, don't we? We've not yet arrived, but we continue to strive. We continue to press in. We will not be beat down. We will not give up. There's two key phrases he uses there, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. And and that forgetting could be taken in a couple ways. It could be saying, I'm going to forget my past, all the the terrible stuff in my background. That, That doesn't define me anymore. My past does not define my future. I I love the statement, uh, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. It's a great saying. But honestly, in the context here, I don't think that Paul is so much thinking of his sinful past uh, because the context that we looked at last week, he is thinking back to all his righteousness. When he recounted all the things that he had on the, the pride side, on the on the balance sheet that he could say, you know, Hebrew of Hebrews born of a tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, and all those accomplishments. And he's like, so all of my very best, I count them as rubbish. I put those ways behind me. I'm forgetting about all my righteousness. So it doesn't matter if I was born into a Christian home and been in church my entire life and and loved Jesus my entire life. So what? Forget about all that. Eyes forward, looking on Jesus. And so that second is straining forward. And, and I use the word tenacious because it is a really good word for the Greek word is to press and to strain. And, and if you look at its translation in other texts, it will say uh, the, the persecution or the chasing after or literally the hunt. That's an interesting thought, the hunt. And he says here, I am pressing in to grab hold of him because Christ has already grabbed hold of me. Did you see that in the context? I'm pressing to get a hold of him, but he's already laid hold of me. And it's an echo back, of course, to chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it forward. Now, you might be saying, press into what? What's the goal? What's he looking at? Well, just go to the end of the the paragraph in verse 21 and and 22. Uh, He gives us the site where he's going. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. This is where I'm going. I'm living in light of that day today. I'm living all of my todays in in light of, of that day. And my eyes are on that prize, that my citizenship is in heaven. That is my true identity. And regardless of of what country on the earth I come from, that's not my true identity. Uh, So I'm not first a Canadian or a Korean. I'm not first a Ukrainian or a Ugandan. My citizenship is in the coming kingdom of God. And living here on earth, I live like an exile. Now, now it might be that I've got my landed immigrant papers and I have to pay taxes and I have to go to work and I have to do all those things. Like I've got to do life here, but my homeland is beckoning me. I'm living for another time and another place. And and friend, I got to remind you this. If you are following Jesus, this is not your homeland. 
and stop trying to make it your homeland. Stop trying to think that if we could somehow fix this culture, if we could just get the right people in parliament and on and on kind of stuff, this is never going to be our home. And as good as it might get here, it still will not be our homeland. Our citizenship is in heaven and our eyes should be there. It is our ultimate destination and we are to be pressing forward. Now, you know this inherently, that the the men and women who make it to the Olympics or even the men and women who excel to the level of competitive professional sport, and, and it doesn't matter what it is, it can be figure skating, boxing, golf, curling for goodness sake, or even bowling. These men and women are dedicated, dedicated to their art. And so we go back to that Corinthians text, and Paul reminds them, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We know this. To win at that level, they do everything to win at that level. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Some of the older translations, some of you might even have one with you today, uh, it says, I beat my body. That's an interesting phrase, I beat my body. Or the Darby translation says, I buffet, I buffet my body. As a kid, I read that, I thought it said, I buffet my body. And I'm like, ah, that's awesome, I love to buffet my body. (laughs) No, no, it's I buffet. So a few years back, some friends, uh, family, gave Carolyn and I tickets to a Chris Body concert. And he has got to be, hands down, one of the best jazz trumpet players alive in our generation. And it was at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver. It was unbelievable. The music just, I mean, you, you, you almost start weeping the moment the music starts. The hair goes up on the back of your neck. And we had good seats. We had good sight line. The, the music was awesome. But what was interesting, in the middle of that concert, he did something I've never seen an artist do. He laid down his trumpet, and he sat down on the edge of the stage. And he's like, I need to talk to some of you young adults in this room who want to be where I am right now. He says, I know at every concert I play, there are budding musicians sitting in the crowd. And, some, and it was interesting, some of them even had their instruments with them because I guess in his concerts, he will sometimes call people up to the stage, come join me. So they bring their instruments with them, hoping that he'll call them to the stage. And he went on for about 10 minutes. And honestly, it was really a bit of a smackdown to these young adults because he said, you might want to be where I am. But my question is this, are you willing to do the hard work to get here? Because when you see me on, my, on the stage like this, this is this much of my life. And the rest of my life are the thousands of hours of practice and the daily hours, even eight and 10 hours, even today in his 50s, that he continues to practice his art. And basically what he was saying to these, the, the young adults, but of course all of us in the audience, that if you want to be good at your craft, then you better be prepared to work your butt off. And so Paul says, I'm straining forward. I'm putting effort in. And here on out, the text is really pretty simple, because what we hear is an invitation and a challenge. He basically says, those of you who are with me and mature, uh, you get it. The rest of you will catch up in time, so just follow along there. Let all of us who are mature, verse 15, think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. 
Those of you who are mature, he says, are going to track with me already. The rest of you will catch up eventually. So follow in my steps and look for other examples that you can look to. In other words, you've got to have your eyes on some people ahead of you, the godly men and women who who go ahead of us, the, the dead saints and the cloud of witnesses that are already ahead of us and the living saints that we look to. And, and why? Because there are always going to be those who fall away from the faith, and so don't follow those. Instead, look to good and godly people ahead of you. And it's a question that every one of us should be asking, who is it in our life that we're looking to? Who are the heroes of our faith that we, we look to? And we know that they're not perfect. They're fallen men and women just like we are. But we can look at their life as example. They're, they're finishing well. They're tracking with the Lord. And we emulate their faith. That's why I encourage you so much to read the great biographies of godly men and women who've gone ahead of us to look at their examples, I, to, to read Hebrews 11 over and over and over and over again. And if you don't know Hebrews 11, it is simply called the Hall of Faith. It just lists men and women, men and women, men and women who have followed faithfully with the Lord. And it says there, they all died without seeing the promise, and yet now they sit like in the grandstands of heaven cheering us on. And because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, stand firm, keep running your race. So he started the paragraph with a commandment to rejoice, and now he ends it in chapter 4, verse 1, with another command, stand firm. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, and here is his last command in this paragraph, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is such a classic Pauline challenge. It's not how you start the race that matters. It's how you finish. Let me just throw up four verses. There's dozens. Let us not grow weary in doing good, Galatians 6 says. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Don't give up. Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You need to underline that last phrase. Put it up on the mirror. Remind yourself daily, not in vain, not in vain, not in vain. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus. Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord. It's not your own strength. It's not your own dunamis, not your own dynamite. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And, And you might be asking the question, why does any of this matter? Why not just shrug your shoulders? Ah, what are we going to go? Let's go get something to eat. It matters, my friends, because the enemy of our soul is knocking out Christians left, right, and center. And there are far too many people who are walking away, not only from the church, but actually walking away from their faith. And others aren't rejecting God entirely, but they're just redefining who God is. I was with a friend just this week, and he was talking about his adult daughter who's walked away from the church and walked away from the Lord. And I said, well, would she still identify as a Christian? And, and he, he said, you know what? I actually think she would. I think she would probably self-proclaim to be a Christian. But he says, here's the problem. She's redefined who God is, and she's redefined who uh, the, uh, the Christianity is about. So she's completely redefined the terms. And so she's uh, identifying with something that we would not identify with. 
We all know folks who once claimed to follow Christ but have shipwrecked their lives. So why is it important? Because the days that we are living in when getting away with nominal Christianity are rapidly coming to a close. They are. If you're not aware of this, you need to wake up. Because the cost-benefit analysis for many people to just check off the census box and say, I'm a Christian, is no longer going to be great because the cost is too great. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. If Bill C-4, you know what that's about? If Bill C-4, when it is tested in the courts, and eventually it will go to court and it will get tested, if in the courts it gets tested and it makes it illegal for us to publicly talk about our biblical sexual ethic, the question will be, will we change our theology and will we shut up or will we stand firm? Stand firm. Thanks, brother. When we face the prospect, which is talked about every year, of losing the tax-exempt status that we have as a charity and the benefits that we have to not pay property taxes because of all the good that we pour back into the community. Uh, when we're challenged with the loss of that, unless we tow the political party line, will we be willing to count the cost? Or to use Paul's language, when the enemies of the cross come after us, will we endure, will we thrive, will we rejoice? You know, we hear stories of like this from all around the world. In fact, I'll tell you one, and I, I can't name the guy's name because this particular message is going out on the web or what country he comes from, but one of our missionaries, one of our national workers that we support was going to be with us this month here, and he would have given a report on this stage, but just a few weeks ago, a neighbor called him over and said, I need you to come help do something in the house, a guy he's been witnessing to, sharing his Christian faith with, a, a guy from a, another world religion. When he got to that guy's house, he attacked him with a knife. Now, he saved himself by putting up his arms, but he slashed his arms so deeply that he had to go to hospital and have surgery to repair these. And you're like, this is the world that these guys live in. He's been in and out of jail, in and out of jail, in and out of jail for preaching Jesus. Come over and help me fix things, and I'll attack you with a knife. We don't hear those stories in North America. But the day may be coming when our opposition rises. And Paul's admonition, rightly understood to each and every one of us, is to get up out of the weeds and get the plane back to the 30,000-foot view. Who is steering the ship of history? The one who has never failed us and whose promises will sustain us to the very end. So in other words, strap on your laces, join the race that Jesus has called us into, because with all that's going on in the news these days, I can't think of a better way than for us to focus in on who our great God is, right? So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. In fact, at all of our campuses, stand with me and stand here with me. I want to read over you just a great comforting psalm from Psalm 46 as we close out this portion of our service. So you can read it on the screen and you can follow along, but just listen to these words of comfort. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea and though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, and God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Does that sound familiar? The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord.
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So, Lord, I pray for the men and women that are listening to this message. You know their circumstances. You know the challenges that they're facing. You know the the battle zone that they're in. You know some, Lord, who may be teetering on the edge of walking away. They're so tired of this spiritual fight. And so, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would strengthen all of us that you would get our eyes back on the one, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who ran the race and finished the race for the joy set before him, and that we would step into the dunamis, into the power of the spirit that Jesus told us would come to us. When he returned to heaven, that the Holy Spirit would fall and he would empower us for daily living and, and that we might echo the Apostle Paul's word, that we might sense it not just in our, in our head but in our heart, that I want to know you, Jesus, I want to know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, and I want to know the day that I'm going to stand before you in the consummation uh, on that great day. Lord, would you anchor us in these trying times that we live in, that you are indeed our great fortress. So we ask that blessing in Jesus' name for your glory, for our joy. Amen.